and Passover is a, a reminder every year that we have a struggle and we have a fight to fight and that we have a responsibility to do that because others have done it for us in the past. And so for me, Passover is so important and so moving for that political reason, not so much for the, the religious side. And then you get the bonus of being with family and, and you know, hanging out and eating great food and drinking a lot of wine, but it's really that political purpose that I find so inspiring for going forward. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Shalom, and welcome to the Forgotten Corner Passover special. If you joined us a few months back for our uh, Hanukkah special, you might have an idea of what we're going to do today. But uh, I am Scott Schmidt, uh, your one non-Jewish host for today. And I have welcomed some of my uh, favorite Jewish Albertans to the show to join us to talk about Passover. So I'm going to just say hello to the group first. Roberta, Dr. Roberta Lexier from Mount Royal University, probably my favorite Jewish person. How are you today? I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) Passover is my favorite Jewish holiday, and I'm excited to share it all with you and dork it up for the day. So absolutely. Thanks for having me. My uh, usual co-host, Jeremy Appel. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing I'm doing all right. I've been uh, getting back to the gym, which is exciting until I get like one of the weird COVID variants going around. But oh, the game. Got yeah, it. That's yep. it. Um, <laughs> and uh, what else have I been doing? Well, no one cares. And we are also, <laughs> and, and we are happy to welcome back to the show, Daniel Moser of Alberta Jewish News. Dan, my friend, welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm good. And I would just like to say that opening the podcast with a Simpsons joke is uh, pretty spot on for Judaic content. Oh, perfect. Well, and I that was like off the cuff too. I'll probably screw it up I, the rest of the I week actually enough. wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons until I was like 10 years old. Um, the Simpsons didn't exist when I was 10 yet. Uh, Almost. I was just thinking, Almost. Like, how old? How well, old well, when my, when my parents started letting me watch Simpsons was when the show's quality declined like precipitously. Um, Fancy word. But, you know, I, I watched the reruns. I, you know, I've seen every. Uh, every good episode so what are we doing here today we are here to talk a little bit about passover and uh i am going to do the least amount of talking so you're welcome listeners and i'm going to sort of turn it over to my three jewish friends here today who are going to tell you a little bit about what the holiday is what it means and we're going to go through a little bit of the uh um the seder which is uh, essentially a dinner ceremony type um thing where it's actually it's really really fun and there's a lot of wine involved and that's what i'm going to do today is kick back and drink wine at 10 in the morning on a saturday and uh, i'm going to let roberta start by uh explaining a little bit about what, what passover is 
Awesome. Well, before we get into our side of things, um, like Scott, I would like to encourage all of you to go maybe grab a glass of wine or four. Um, we're going to drink a lot over the course of the next little while. So uh, settle in and grab your wine. If you're a drinker, if you're not, no pressure. That's totally fine too. Pressure. Um, so you can also the... smoke weed. It's in the Talmud. It Look probably it up. is in the Talmud. <laughs> Look <laughs> it up. <laughs> Everything seems to be in the Talmud. Um, so overall, the purpose of the Seder is for the elders of our community to explain what it is to be a Jew. It's really about um, telling the story of the exodus from Egypt and the delivery of the Jewish peoples from slavery. So if you think back, I mean, many of you have probably seen the Ten Commandments with our awful, awful human being, Charlton Heston. Um, but the Ten Commandments is a lot of the story that we're going to be telling today. Um, some of the, the main points of kind of the, the exodus from Egypt. And the point of it, and the reason it's one of my favorite holidays, is because it's really an opportunity to remember the persecution um, that the Jewish people have faced in the past. And in particular, it's a moment for many of us to recall the persecution that Jews and many others still face in the present. So for me, the importance of Passover is really the link of the past to the present. Um, and it's really about trying to keep alive the story of the Jewish people and to see it as an unfinished story. Um, so the idea is that we are all still in the process of escape um, and we're all still seeking freedom. So in some traditions, uh, mine, for instance, um, the purpose of Passover really is a political one. It's to remind us of our responsibility to fight for the freedom of those who live under the thumb of oppression um, and to really think about the persecution of people around the world. And I wanted to um, share a quote from a Haggadah, which is the sort of book that that frames the Seder that my family and I created for ourselves when I was a teenager. Um, sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. Oh, I would just say um, for, for the Calgary people listening that some would call the Haggadah a guidebook for a great <laughs> Seder. <laughs> it might be a guidebook for the great Seder, indeed. That's what we should call it. Um, so when I was a teenager, I was a bit of a, a, a precocious teenager, and uh, my mom and my sister and I decided to write our own Haggadah that would really emphasize this political stuff. So I'm going to quote from it a bit today, um, and just so you get a sense of how, first of all, ridiculous I was as a teenager, but also how political this, this holiday can be for people like me. Um, so this is how we start our Seder. So as we begin our Passover Seder, let us keep in mind our siblings around the world who still suffer from persecution. So that's basically our like starting point. Let's just always keep in mind people are suffering. And just as a quick side note here, for those of you who are Christians or who know about the Christian tradition, uh, the Last Supper, Jesus's Last Supper, the big famous painting, that was a Passover Seder. Um, they were celebrating Passover and um, participating in the Seder, which is always why I found it weird that there was bread, because there shouldn't be, but whatever, that's a whole other story. So there are connections to other religions here, um, and you might be interested in it from that perspective. Any other thoughts about your traditions that you've done at Passover, why you do it, what do you love about it? Um, well, there were two things that you that you mentioned that I thought were pretty were pretty spot on and important. Um, the first was that uh, the story of Passover is uh, is an unfinished one that it's it continues and and is uh, is is unfinished. I guess I already said that. Uh, but and and that calls back to a a uh, Passover holiday column that we actually had run in our most recent Calgary edition from uh, Rabbi uh, Glickman of the Bnei Tikva uh, Synagogue in Calgary. 
and and that was that was the the crux of what he was talking about was that you know um as long as there is you know suffering in the world the passover story isn't done and and uh and yeah and that and that's an important part of the of the ceremony as well that's how my ceremonies all, uh, often would start as well kind of tying things in to present day and to to other similar atrocities and and difficult circumstances that people are living in all over the world so that's a that's a good starting point for sure this isn't really related but i'm did did growing up did you guys do the uh hard-boiled egg in uh salt water or is that just just me roberta's nodding her head not realizing <laughs> it's a podcast oh, i'm awesome. a <laughs> i'm a i'm a bad one for that because I, as a kid, I was allergic to eggs, so I have like zero memory of egg-related stuff. I feel like that was just a blocked-out thing if we didn't. That. Oh, I'm sorry. Did was- did I did I like trigger some? Trauma? Yeah, yeah. You should have done some a trigger warning before before egg <laughs> content. Okay, let's uh, let's restart. Well, no. So so because we were we wanted to set the scene a little bit for what a seder looks like. I, when I met Roberta in high school, I started to participate in um, some of these holidays with her family, and the seder was insane because it would take up more than one room. You'd actually have like, like tables just like sprued all over the house, almost holding all of these people that were there because it was important, right, Roberta, to have like a lot of people, like a, the the more the merrier kind of thing, right? And so you have this authentically long dining room table um, and it has the fanciest uh, dishes that you have and it's really just quite elegant. And then there are some things that have to be on the table that are important to the Seder. Like Jeremy just mentioned the hard boiled eggs. So what are some of those things, Roberta, that have to be uh, part of this setup? Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who have never been to a Passover Seder, um, we just thought we'd set the scene and Scott did a good job with my family. I don't know others, um, but every Passover Seder I've been to is massive. I mean, they're meant to be large gatherings of people. Uh, these days it's hard, uh, maybe Zoom Seders, I guess, but um, but like our, our largest one was 24 people. It was a big, big event <laughs> and spread around the house. Um, but um, if you imagine the table, um, as Scott said, with the, the fancy family dishes, whatever, china or paper plates or whatever been passed down from generation. Um, but in the middle of the table is a, a, a kind of weird looking plate. It's like a really, really big plate. Dars was white with blue writing on it. Um, and it contains some really strange things. It has a hard boiled egg, um, a shank bone. So like a, a dried bone from, from whatever the meal is, um, a sprig of parsley, uh, a glob of horseradish. We use red horseradish. I don't know what others use. Um, and haroses, which are the most amazing mix of apples, honey, wine, and walnuts, which are delicious. Um, and each of those things represents a different part of the ceremony or a different piece of um, of the service. So I don't know, Jeremy, do you want to talk about what each of the, the pieces symbolize? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while, but I think I can, I think my Hebrew school education um will help me uh remember so so the the parsley or the it's just it has to be a green vegetable right and parsley is the most common but um that represents spring and renewal uh the egg i believe represents the the temple in jerusalem if i'm not mistaken i don't know how you get an egg out of that but you know 
self symbolism. Um, the bitter herbs represent the bitterness of us having been slaves in, well, not us, but our ancestors having been slaves in Egypt. Okay, so the hard-boiled egg symbolizes the festival sacrifices that would be brought to the temple in the days of the ancestors. Um, so like just the regular sacrifices on a normal um, celebration, um, not Passover specifically. And then the shank bone is a special offering made for Passover. Um, so as Dan said, um, we'll talk later about the, the idea of Passover, oh, but yeah. the, the blood on the, on the door frame. So then the parsley or um, some other green vegetable represents kind of two things, um, spring, but also the tears of the slaves in Egypt. And we'll talk about how that works in a little bit. Um, the horseradish or bitter herbs um, is meant to represent the bitter pain of slavery. And the haroses, my favorite, I could eat buckets and buckets of haroses, um, is really meant to represent the mortar of the that the Hebrew slaves would have used uh, to help build buildings for the Egyptians. And the whole point of this, I mean, these are all kind of weird things that clearly a lot of us don't really know too well. Um, but the reason I, I wanted to mention it is because it's really a point about how um, symbolic everything at this meal is, that everything we do has a meaning and a purpose. Um, and so we want you to know that there's this weird plate on the table that it has all this stuff in it and we'll get to it um, but every single thing represents something else within this this seder that we're going to do so the seder begins and uh it's a, as i'm looking here it's very misogynistic the the leader is apparently the eldest man which uh i mean i can get behind in this zoom call because i'm pretty sure that's me um but uh dan Take us through a little bit uh, of the start the theater for us. Tell us, your, be our eldest man, our, our leader, and uh, and and start this up, so I can well, start drinking. It it is interesting that you mentioned um, that it is a, a man that traditionally leads the seder and and everything like that because one of the items that is uh, now pretty common to add to the seder plate is an orange, and that's uh, to represent. Uh, women and uh, LGBTQ uh, members of, of Judaism and, and to show awareness uh, for them during the Seder as well. So there you go. I, I don't want to, uh, none of these foods actually make sense to any of the things that they represent. I'm just saying like <laughs> the parsley one, the Roberta's reading that out. I'm like, are you that it's, it's tears folks. It, parsley is tears orange is lgbtq they're literally just picking any food off the shelf and be like this is what this represents anyways go ahead well it's it's judaism <laughs> it's all supposed to be open to interpretation it's supposed to drive us to have long conversations that inevitably will change and don't really come to a conclusion so <laughs> there you go um and then uh, another thing that you mentioned earlier was also that you were going to kick back and have the glass of wine and that's another important part of the Passover seder, which is uh, is reclining while we eat. And, and part of that is because we are now free. So uh, we are free to recline and be comfortable while we're eating. Did I get did I get that one right? Yeah, she's not. <laughs> it sounds right. Yeah, sounds right. All right, let's begin. Okay, right. uh, so I guess we uh, we start with the candles, uh, which are you know traditionally lit at the at the beginning of most Jewish holidays, probably all Jewish holidays, um, and then from there we go to the first cup of wine. So Scott, take a drink. Yes. 
you have to by the way you have to like drink it all in one gulp oh yeah 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 we're gonna listen i poured four glasses of wine into one glass of wine so we're gonna do this not how it works that's a glass the wine's the best part of all of this like as a kid i mean it's it's funny in judaism because you start drinking wine very early i mean it's part of the the synagogue um services and then passover it's like these four cups of wine but we started with manischewitz and i don't know if any of you ever drink manischewitz oh hell yeah it's like the sweetest friday night will be drinking manischewitz going it's like so sweet kind of gross <laughs> but like we loved it and we would just guzzle back these glasses of wine and get so drunk as kids like i it's wouldn't just, it's intense i would not recommend uh getting drunk on manischewitz no. wine because it's very sweet like you're gonna have a really it's like drinking syrup man it's it's, yeah. it's intense i in fact they actually had other wine at roberta's i think she drank i don't even think i drank the manischewitz i think i had like even then i couldn't handle how sweet that stuff was but the manischewitz is cares when you're like when you're 14 and 15 or 16 years old and like you're just getting the booze all day through i mean who cares bakers can't be choosers oh and i don't know if this was true for you guys but for me this kind of uh you know chirping each other and stuff like that was a big part of the passover setters where you know you're teasing each other about drinking the wine you're teasing each other about you know the horseradish in particular who can eat more horseradish are you eating the red one or the white one which one is spicier whose face is going to turn red first from either too much spice or too much wine stuff like that so i don't know it's a a great you guys you guys are killer at insults man like those are real (laughs) those are those are cut deep Okay, keep going. Sorry, go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so after after the first you like cup red of wine. horseradish loser. Anyway, so no, explain what the why we drink four glasses of wine. I, I can do that. Okay. Um, but you know, pri- prior to uh, Roberta doing research for this episode, I did not know any of this um, about the cups and what each of them symbolize. But the idea is that um, we tell our story of the exodus from Egypt in different ways with different words, um, but God gave uh, promises of freedom to our people. And so we remember each one with each cup of wine. Um, So the first is I am Adonai, which means, I mean, it's one of the, the names for God in Hebrew. And I will free you from the burden of the Egyptians. Um, Cup number two is the cup of sanctification. So just as God brought us from Egypt, so he will bring us to... No, sorry, Jeremy. We'll have to go back. So that's cup one. We're all... This is all still cup one. Oh, right. Because... Okay. We'll do cup two later. <laughs> right, right. Okay, let's start again. So the first cup is the cup of sanctification. Yeah. Right. So the 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 first cup, so um, is the cup of sanctification. So just as God took us out of Egypt, so He'll bring us to the hereafter, or Olam Haba in Hebrew, which means the world to come. And so, uh, should I talk about the blessing? Well, you just, we say, I mean, we can just speed through that, but just like mention that there is the blessing and then we booze. Okay. So there's a blessing that you say. There are two blessings that you say, actually. 
fun fact because it's the first cup right so that there's like there's a blessing for the cup and then there's a blessing for it being the first cup though i think it's the other way around but the blessing anyways um and then you drink so after we drink our first cup we eat our vegetables which as uh we mentioned earlier represent rebirth and renewal right passover occurs in spring and like spring festivals and other religions like say i don't know easter um it celebrates uh this notion of rebirth and um we read uh, uh, from the Song of Songs, the, the poetry of nature and love evokes, which is uh, seen as representative of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. Um, should, should, should I read the... Uh, let's, let, let's get Dan to read that. Okay. So, Dan. Which am I reading? Sorry. So at the, the so yeah. Jeremy just said, we read from the Song of Songs, the poetry of nature and love that evokes the scene as a representative of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. And then you could come in and say, maybe just read that poem to give the people an idea of. This is the. Uh... The my beloved speaks and says to me, arise my love, my fair one and come away. This is hilarious. This is exactly like a sitter, by the way. <laughs> Totally yeah, in that, in that no one knows I can actually like, attest where we to are. that. Like, who yeah. the fuck goes next? And Give also, me a small I, part. I, I think at, the, at this point, it's probably worth noting that at least in my childhood, every year the Seder would get shorter and we'd skip more and more of the Haggadah just to get to the food because that's yeah. what we were all there for. Yeah. Okay, so uh, my beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And so now, then after that happens, why are we dipping the parsley in salt water? So the main idea is that we we understand that rebirth is bittersweet, that there's a, a, a thrill in spring, you know, we're celebrating the, the rebirth of the planet, but there's a, a, a kind of bittersweet side to that and is in that the old must die for the new to be born. Um, and so not only are we kind of recognizing the tears that the, the Hebrew slaves cried as, um, in Egypt, but we're also recognizing this kind of um, bittersweet nature to the rebirth process process. Um, and the reason I mentioned that is because some see this as kind of a revolutionary um, uh, theme coming through the, the Passover Seder that, um, you know, we must have the old die off to have something new and better be born. And that can lead to revolutionary movements and other things. You can also really see how the story of Christianity derived from this, like the old has to die for the new to be reborn and better. Easter I mean it's pretty bang on right like it's very uh anyways not that I'm saying that Jesus isn't real but <laughs> that's a whole other conversation I would never say that yeah <laughs> 
So the okay. next stage. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, please. I do. was just going to say that. So the next stage of the the seder is, I think, one I find really interesting because it's really a, a a common theme I think throughout many religions and many many communities, which is this idea of sharing. And so on the table beside the the seder plate is also a, a kind of package. It's like a cloth or silk in our case. Um, uh, container, I guess, um, that holds three pieces of matzah, so unleavened bread, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, and at this point, the, the leader of the Seder, this um, elder man, usually, uh, takes the middle one and breaks it in half. Um, and then the leader will then go and hide this the half of this matzah. Um, and later on, in after the meal is done, the, the kids will go and search for it. Um, this is a really big fun part of it. Um, some elders are very good at hiding this piece of matzah. Some are less good. Um, my dad used to like to hide it under his plate. It was pretty easy to find sometimes, um, but it becomes a big thing. But the point of it is that um, we are going to share this together, that um, we share together the offerings that we have. And we have a, a, a service where we're, we're bringing people together. And so among people everywhere, sharing bread forms a bond of fellowship. For the sake of our redemption, we say together the ancient words which join our own people and with those who are in need, with the wrongly imprisoned and the beggar in the street. For our redemption is bound up in the deliverance from bondage of people everywhere. And this is a poem that we included in our, our Seder, which is, um, this is the bread of affliction, the poor bread, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who are in want share the hope of Passover. As we celebrate here, we join our people everywhere. This year we celebrate here, next year in the land of Israel. Now we were, are all still in bonds. Next year, may we all be free. That was always a lie because we were right back in your parents' living room the following year every time. Absolutely. And this one also, I mean, I made a note here that um, there, there's, you know, questions around Zionism and, and the state of Israel that have to be grappled with with some of these. And we talked about that a lot on the, the Hanukkah special. So we'll talk a bit more, I'm sure, today about it. But, um, you know, this idea that we'll all meet back in Israel next year um, is problematic on lots of levels. But it is kind of part of the, the story that ultimately the, the end point is that we all will meet together for our final redemption. So we include it there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it may be worth noting uh, at this point that there is a distinction between political Zionism, which is the, pro uh, the project of the state of Israel, and cultural Zionism, which is just this yearning um, to return to um, the Holy Land, and those aren't the same thing. And uh, I mean, when people speak about Zionism, you know, they're talking about political Zionism, but um, that's only existed since, you know, the late 19th century and didn't pick up steam until, uh, you know, after the horrors of the Holocaust. But cultural Zionism is something that is integral to Judaism, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with wanting Jews to be able to live in the Holy Land in peace. Um, it, it's just um, the idea of this exclusionary Jewish state is political Zionism. It's a far more uh, modern uh, concept. I always viewed um, the next year in Jerusalem or next year in Israel as being more of a uh, 
a symbolic thing than a than a literal thing where you know we're not we're not saying we're all actually going to congregate in Jerusalem proper but more of like the idea of Jerusalem which is what you were talking about with cultural Zionism where it's a where we're getting together next year hopefully where we're all in a better place um, and and where there is more peace in the world and and everything like that yeah it's like talking heads like homes where I want to be but I guess I'm already there is how I uh, what's that Mag Magid how do you pronounce that <laughs> Magid. This is the most important part of the Seder. Yeah, Magid. so okay. Magid, this is the longest part of the Seder. This is where we actually tell the story of the exodus from Egypt. And this is the part everyone kind of skips through and like picks and chooses which parts we actually go through and which we just skip over because everyone's hungry. Um, and, and this is the one where, and I think this is, typical at Seder's, but when I was growing up, we would go around the table. And so each person would read like a page or something. And I remember um, I would always want to read in English because I'm a lot faster reading English than Hebrew. But my parents sent me to like this expensive private Jewish day school um, when I was a kid. And they would always demand that I read it in Hebrew. And I was like, no, come on. And, and anyways, that, that was something also my dad used to do when he was a kid. He would just read it in English. And then my grandma was like, nope, nope. That's not why I paid for your Hebrew education. It's lose-lose, um, right? Because either you read your part in Hebrew and you struggle with the Hebrew because, you know, you went to Jewish grade school and now you're in your 20s. And, uh, and somebody will inevitably say, oh, yeah. I guess that money was worth spending on Jewish day school or you read in English and you get the same criticism. So, you know, Wait, you really but, it, but isn't Jewish day school free in Edmonton? Uh, no, it is not. I thought Talmud Torah was a public school. Talmud Torah is a uh, unique semi-public, semi-private school. Um, it's so, a public private partnership. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it has been, I think since its inception, um, and uh, so basically you do pay tuition and the tuition goes for the Judaic content of the school oh. and uh, the, the non-Judaic portions of the school are covered by, by the public school system. So it's a lot cheaper than where my parents sent me. Yeah, probably like half or so. Half off. Yeah. That's yeah. a pretty good deal. So, so Roberta, tell us, give us the synopsis of this, this story because uh, I remember having... It, it would go around the table and we all had to read little passages and things like that. And of course it would be, uh, you just really just looked at, like Dan was saying earlier, you looked ahead to see if where you were about to read. Right. And then that's where you kind of paid attention to, but give us the two minute synopsis if you can, of what the story is. Sure. I mean, I'm a historian. So I, I, and I think many Jews have a historical sort of sensibility because this is the kind of thing we do every year is retell this history and, and think about our history. And so, um, you know, I find this stuff kind of fascinating, but also um, it's kind of hard because these are Bible stories. So keep in mind that this is how the Bible presents them, not, you know, historical fact. We could find that out separately, but I'm telling this as it's told in the Bible. So take it as it is. So the events we're going to talk about take place shortly um, before Moses is handed the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So just to give you um, a sense of our timing, if you're a Bible knower, um, this is kind of his origin story, I guess, in some ways, if we want to think about it in a comic book sense. Um, so we have to go back a little bit um, and talk about Joseph. Um, he 
of the Technicolor Dreamcoat that you may know of. Um, so he had been sold into slavery down in Egypt um, by jealous brothers, um, such dicks. Um, but somehow I hate Joseph- fake friends. I know, fake friends and fake brothers are the worst. So Joseph's brothers are jealous of him and they sell him into slavery down in Egypt. But somehow Joseph manages to thrive. He's like super awesome. Um, he's really good at business um, and he gains the confidence and trust of the rulers of Egypt. And so he gets placed in charge of the food supplies, which is a pretty big job, especially for a Jew. Now, at the same time, there's a drought occurring throughout the region, and people are migrating in large numbers to Egypt. This is the only place around with ample food supplies. Um, this is in part because of the Nile and in part because of Joseph, so yay right on. Now, a lot of the people who migrated there included Hebrews um, coming from up north, um, and they ended up prospering quite well in Egypt. Their numbers begin to grow, um, and Egyptian rulers start to fear their political power. So the Pharaoh who's in charge years and years later after Joseph, um, he forgets about what Joseph has done for the Egyptian um, uh, empire. Um, and he decides to seize all the property of all the Hebrews and enslave them. Um, this is his way of limiting political power. Now, this may seem familiar in some ways because this story is a common story, right? Um, you know, somebody is sold um, or ends up in a foreign land. Um, somehow they manage to do well and succeed within that system. Um, and they start to gain power. And those currently in power are upset about that and do everything in their um, capability to limit that power. So basically, we're telling a common story of how people are persecuted for doing well in a system that they don't control. So the Hebrews are now enslaved and it's really horrible. This is a really bad thing. Um, and then we get to the great man focused Bible story of how Moses comes and saves the day. Now I say that because I mean, in the Bible, Moses is the one that comes and saves the day. I guess God is really the one that comes and saves the day. Um, but we could see this in a different way. Um, you know, uh, Dan mentioned the other day when we were talking that it can be seen as kind of a wildcat strike that happens that, you know, this isn't just about one dude coming and, and fixing the world, I guess, is my point. Um, so that's just our little bit of background. Um, but then we get to kind of the fun part or the, the really horrible, embarrassing part, depending on your perspective, of the Passover Seder, which is the four questions. And the four questions are always asked by the youngest member of the Seder, um, which is really horrible when you're the youngest member of the Seder. <laughs> um, and usually you are for decades and have to do it. But I am no longer the youngest, so one of you has to do the four questions. I think that's, how old are you, Dan? I'm 35, so I'm pretty sure that's Oh, me. yeah, it's me. This is- Jeremy's going to sing. Because growing, I can if you, I don't know if you want me to, but I will. Um, in the, you know, in the spirit of uh, tradition, uh, growing up, it was always my brother. He's uh, like two and a half years younger than me. So since I can remember, it was my brother singing the four questions and yeah, he hated it. And then sometimes, right, because with the Passover Seder, you have this big gathering. I know my mom always made a point of inviting, uh, you know, uh, families, friends of the family that didn't have anywhere else to go um, to, to celebrate with us. So often it was there kids who were the youngest but um more often than not it was my brother and uh i'm not sure how much he liked that but 
uh, I'm the youngest here today, so I will gladly uh, sing for you. Um, are you guys ready for this? Yes, I want the four questions. Do it. Okay, so I'll, I'll sing it, and then I will explain it. Yes. Okay. Ma nishta na halai la haza mi ko mi ko And then uh, I don't have the other word, the transliteration of the other lyrics in front of me. Do you want me to just explain like what, or should I, should I actually go into the questions? I can, I can look it up. Nope. Just explain, just do the, yep. Quick explanation of what that was. Oh, okay. So, so that, that's like the, the refrain or, or, well, but anyways, what, what, what that's asking is why is this night different from all other nights? Right. And then, so it gets into, um, on all other nights, we eat bread or matzah. On this night, why only matzah? Uh, right. And, and this is the sense that you're the youngest and you're inquisitive and you want to know more about, like, what are we doing? Why are we You're here? asking the elders to tell you the story. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I am going to look up how to say that in Hebrew. How to sing that in Hebrew. I mean, we could just give them the rest in English and they've had the... Yeah, yeah, whatever. You've they've heard had the idea of the singing, right? Yeah, but... so that was the first question. The second question is, on all other nights, we eat herbs or vegetables of any kind. On this night, why bitter herbs? Very good question. On all other nights, we do not dip even once. On this night, why do we dip twice? Did did we uh, did we talk about that already? Did we explain that? Yeah, About the the salt water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So that, um, and then the final question is: On all other nights, we eat our meals in any manner. On this night, why do we sit around the table together in a reclining position? And then so. Then so the Dan, next, I think I think we can probably skip the like four pe four types of people. Do you think, guys? I I always like that part. Okay, cool. I mean, it's important and interesting. I just wondered for yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was like talking about like archetypes and stuff. Yeah. Um, and and so after you ask four questions, then you get the answer, and it's really long and um boring when you're young enough to be asking the questions um but then it gets to a part where uh it talks about how the torah the hebrew bible the old testament if you will uh describes four children um each of whom has questions about this exodus story and these types of kids are meant to represent like four different types of people in the world. So it's very much like this, this Jungian like archetype uh, type of thing. So there's the wise child who asks, what are the laws that God has commanded us? And then the parent should answer by instructing the child in the laws of the Passover, starting from the beginning and ending with the laws of the afikomen which we discussed earlier as that little piece of matzah that gets broken off and then the kids 
have to search for it. Uh, it's the wise who want to know the service is theirs to do. They want to know the role in society and how that fits into this uh, redemption arc. Then there's the wicked child, and that's the bad type of wicked, not like wicked. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> what does this Passover service mean to you? The Haggadah says that the parent should answer, it's because of what God did for me when I came out of Egypt, specifically me and not you. If you had been there with your attitude, you wouldn't have been redeemed. The wicked one uh, withdraws the self from anything beyond themselves and thus um, also remove themselves from the joys of redemption. So the message here is that selfishness is bad. Then there's the simple child, the dumb one, if you will. Uh, what is the Seder service? And the parent should answer, with a mighty hand, God brought us out of Egypt. Therefore, we commemorate that event tonight through this Seder. So you give a very simple answer to someone who is you know, openly simplistic. And then the final type of person is the child who does not know how to ask. So like the shy one. And the, what the Haggadah says is that the parent should begin this discussion with the child based on the verse. Uh, and you shall tell your child on that day, we commemorate Passover tonight because of what God did for us when we went out of Egypt. So we encourage them to begin to awaken the need for knowledge and the will to serve the broader community. So with these questions asked, we must, as good people of the book that we all are here today, uh, try to answer them. And uh, I think uh, this would be a good point to pass it off to someone who is not me. Daniel. Yeah, the, uh, the Haggadah really makes you work for that next glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, and the, but once you get to the second glass, it's all... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always like to, to recommend that people have a casual glass of wine in addition to the four glasses to kind of, you know, uh, lubricate things throughout the, uh, the story. But yeah, I mean, the, the next big part for sure is the, um, is the Ten Commandments, uh, where we, we, you dip a pee in your glass of wine and you, you spill a drop for each of the, or sorry, did I say commandments? I meant uh, the Ten Plagues, um, where you, you spill a drop of wine for each plague. Um, you know, uh, blood, frogs, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it is, you know, fun stuff that kids like to keep kids engaged in the, in the dinner and in the story as well. So I know at my table, uh, we would often have, you know, like toys for each plague and the leader would kind of throw them out onto the table and, and things like that. So that's cool. I didn't have that. You got to keep the kids engaged. Otherwise, they're all going to kind of fall asleep before the meal or start complaining so much that you have to speed things along to get yeah. to the meal. Or go I wonder if this is generational because the parents basically said, too bad, sit down, shut up. This is what we're doing. And so then we, there was no toys or fun, but we just went through the story and how um, basically- They just told how, you about the part where they drowned all the male babies and then you're just like, well, that's okay. I'm good. Yeah, this is a tough story to have to get through as kids. It's a, it's a 
brutal one. So basically, the answers to the, the questions that, that Jeremy asked really have to do with this story of the exodus from Egypt. And, um, and I, I just, I'm going to run through a couple of key points because they connect to, to the larger uh, political, I think, importance of, of Passover, but also the, the modern relevance. So again, um, the Hebrews were enslaved, they were getting too much power. And so the pharaohs were like, dudes, we're going to enslave you. Um, and then the pharaoh decides that this isn't enough and decides to drown all the male babies born to the Hebrews. Um, this is, I think, interesting in a, in a larger political connection because it's, it's kind of a mass sterilization process um, that we've seen used in other contexts, um, including in Canada with the forced sterilization of indigenous peoples. And so um, now and, we and Ethiopian Jews in Israel. Absolutely. Um, it's not a one sided issue for sure. Um, and so I think this, you know, again, there's there's important connections here. So Moses is born um, to a Hebrew family, um, but he is basically sent down the river um, and kidnapped and raised as a prince. Um, so lucky Moses gets to live his life in luxury. Um, eventually, he realizes how bad uh, the Hebrew people are being treated by the Egyptians. So he kind of sees like, oh, wait, these people who adopted me are treating my original people really badly. Um, and so he decides to take action and he beats up a taskmaster. So right on, good for you, Moses, beat up those taskmasters. And then he's away, which is not as good. It's a little, um, you know, wimpy. Um, but then the burning bush tells him to go back. So great. Um, and then Moses goes back and he says to the Pharaoh to let my people go. And as a person who studies social movements and social change, I greatly appreciate the um, simplicity of his framing. One clear goal, let my people go. That's it. It's easy. Um, the Pharaoh basically says, fuck you, Moses. I'm not letting your people go. I like them as slaves. And so God then, as uh, Dan mentioned, sends plagues to try and um, convince the pharaoh to let the people go and i want to mention here that this is the dark vengeful god of the prequels not the lovey-dovey god of the new testament so he is a pretty jerky evil guy in the first one as you'll see from the plagues that he sends to the egyptians so um one after the other, he basically sends these plagues. And um, as Dan mentioned, and I think Scott mentioned earlier, we kind of dab a dollop of wine on our plates each time to recognize each of these plagues. I feel like that's very wasteful, but and it makes a big mess on your plate and you're always then trying to keep the wine out of your food, but whatever, all of those things. Um, so these are pretty nasty things. He sends blood, frogs, vermin, beasts, cattle disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then killing of the firstborn, which um, I super think- Really is. ups it on the last one there. Like the first really nine are kind of <laughs> all like, all right, like this sucks you know got to work in the dark got a bat you know i need a locust swatter yeah exactly like, and uh, then, oh, where's now billy we're kill your kids yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> isn't there a song the, about kind of the, the frogs point, that was the point well yeah for them to be uh to escalate in severity um that each time moses would go back to pharaoh and be like okay look we did this like are you sure you won't just let us go and then uh depending on where you are in the story Pharaoh's heart hardens and he and he says, Nope, I'm I'm still not letting you go. And go, okay, well, worse stuff is coming. Worse stuff is coming. And then he says, Okay, last chance, you know, worse stuff is coming. And uh yeah, so it's it's supposed to escalate like that. I mean it's 
it's a subjective list, but I don't know if I'd rank darkness as the second worst thing on there. Well, but if you I think mean, about it, like this is pre-electricity and all that sort of stuff. And the idea is that like basically God blocks out the sun. Um, and so there's no, like they can't grow crops. They can't function. Like there's just total darkness. Like it would yeah, be pretty it's terrifying like, to it, live in total darkness. It's Obviously like, you've it's, never had a boil. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point. It, well, the, the darkness, it reminds me of uh, uh, Mr. Burns in the uh, part one yes. of Who Shot Mr. Burns, yeah. where he just blocks out the sun so everyone has to pay him for power. Well, now we're apparently going to do it for climate change reasons. So awesome for us. Um, so in this process, as Dan said, you know, these just keep escalating and keep escalating. And we mentioned earlier this kind of sacrifice that was made for Passover. Um, and the last, uh, the last plague is the one that gives us the name for our holiday because basically what happened is that God can't really I mean I guess God's all-knowing so should probably be able to distinguish Egyptian from Hebrew firstborn children but apparently cannot and so the Israeli or the Hebrew people have to mark their doors with um, blood from a, a sacrificed lamb to say like we're the Jewish household so when you go kill the families or the firstborn sons please pass over our house and get to the other house um, and skip us. So don't kill our firstborns, just kill the Egyptian ones. So this is apparently the story of how this all happens. Wow, I was, it was like, the angel oh. of death also, not, not God. Yeah, fair, fair, yes. fair. Okay, I'm putting like, I'm making God the like actual doer of these things. God's, God's going door to door and be like, what's up? Yeah, it was not, the name's not Adonai. God. Yeah. My name's kill Adonai. <laughs> That's fair. Okay. He sends the angel of death to do this. <laughs> um, and then, so the Pharaoh's like, okay, wait, like, whoa, we're at like a intense point here. So I don't like my firstborns getting killed here. So, okay, you can go. Um, I will let you leave, but you have to leave now, like not tomorrow, but like get the fuck out right now. Um, and so the Hebrew people don't have time to let their bread rise before they escape from Egypt. And this is where we get to the matzah, the unleavened bread. Um, and we now are not allowed to eat leavened bread for the entire uh, time of the Passover um, holiday. And it recognizes this like a rushed escape that the, the Hebrews had to make out. But then the Pharaoh's even worse of a jerk. Um, not only did he make them leave fast, but he then decides he made a mistake and was like, oops, I probably shouldn't have let my slaves leave um, and chases after them and sends the army after them. And you, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, the movie, you will remember the big scene with the splitting of the Red Sea and God lets the Hebrews run through the Red Sea and then drowns the Egyptian army behind them. Um, and the basic quote at the end of this is that in every generation, there rises a nation to destroy destroy us, but God saves us. And we hope and pray that one day in the near future, all who are persecuted will also be saved. So basically this story is about how um, our, the peoples were enslaved um, and God helped free them um, through this kind of long, horrible process of, of plagues and other such things. Now, if I'm not mistaken, um, you can actually blame God for uh, Pharaoh's reversal in his, uh, in his plan to let the the Hebrews go and then and then chase after them, uh, because I think if I'm remembering correctly, it's written that like God hardened his heart. So so some of this was um, God making things more difficult as soon as they seemed like they were going to be on the easy path to freedom, and and it all kind of plays back into the the themes we already mentioned too. So and this is like 
like this is all like in between the first and second cup of booze like you we really like got people to pour glasses of wine and we're like we'll see in about 45 minutes you can have your second sip but uh that being said so um we're at the second glass we can we've actually arrived at the second cup of wine right like we've told the story the jews have escaped the egyptian army is drowned god is great let's have some wine like we're celebrating dead people at this point is that what's happening okay let's do it cheers that's why during the 10 plagues you have to pour one out yeah, so you drink a for your bit dead Egyptian for homies. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's the really cruel cup of wine right near the end that you pour, but you don't get to drink. That one's the worst one. Um, so the second cup, the first cup was the cup of sanctification. So this idea that that we trusted God to free us from Egypt, so we will trust Him to free us from bondage eventually here. Um, the second cup is the cup of deliverance, and so with the second cup of one we recall the second promise of liberation and that is that i god in this case will deliver you from bondage and so we remember with gratitude the redemption of our ancestors from egypt but we now look to a future of redemption um, and the building of the city of peace this is kind of that cultural zionism that that was talked about earlier so this um, cup of wine we're going to celebrate um, liberation and and redemption but also knowing that there is more redemption to come so drink up Years, yeah. I don't have wine, but it's early. It, I kind of wish I did now. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's Saturday morning, so I mean, you might it regret it later. <laughs> it doesn't taste like it did last night, but it's fine. I'm and getting get more to, used to it by the sip. Sorry, I was just gonna say that as we get to, we get to then the best part of this whole thing, which is the meal. Um, and if any of you have ever been to a Jewish anything. Um, celebration, family meal, anything. Food is kind of the center of the universe. Um, You know, there's that kind of stereotype of Jewish grandmothers always having to feed you. Um, And they do. I mean, there's always food around. There's always food. So I don't know. Do you guys have stuff you want to talk about the importance of the food part of this meal um, or of this Seder? Well, well, I mentioned the hard boiled egg in uh, salt water bit. And I believe we would do that right before the meal. It was a nice little like appetizer and uh, before they brought out the, uh, the matzo ball soup, of course. Saltwater eggs. Has, was that like Roberta, did your family not do that? Is my family weird? No, no, we did it, but we, my mom started to do it as like a, she made egg salad that she would put on a leaf of lettuce, basically. So it's huh. like, yes. instead of just eating like a hard boiled egg, she'd like mash up the egg and put it on that bed of lettuce. And so that she I kind remember. of faked us into eating hard boiled eggs that way. Um, but yeah, like the meal I think is, I mean, it, I don't know how yours went, but ours was always the same. It was the egg, matzo ball soup, then like a massive turkey dinner, like massive, massive, everything you could imagine. And it was like, think about it i mean my mom would cook for 24 people like these are massive meals and so food is so much the center of jewish life and jewish celebration that it's like we're gonna rush through it but i wish we could just sit here and have a nice relaxed meal with all of you because it is just so much part of the the process the the potato pancakes what are those called latkes oh my god that's the wrong holiday that's hanukkah what we don't get those no this is bullshit but do latkes have bread in them 
I mean, you can do a lot. You like, could, I mean, yeah. Like, you, people do like potato kugels and, and stuff. Like oh yeah, that. kugel. Yeah, that that takes me back. I haven't and, had and filter fish. Obviously, is a huge. One oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You filter fish. Let, let's talk a bit about filter fish because when I was a kid, I thought it was absolutely disgusting. But as I grew older, I was like, "This is kind of good." Like my dad always had jars of it in the in the fridge, and I just like I don't even know what it is, and it just looks gross. And there's no way. No, it's called gefilte fish too. I'm not eating something called gefilte fish. Yeah, well, what gefilte fish basically is, it's like sort of like a hot dog, but with fish. So it's all these just different types of fish, like ground together with like carrots, and then made into like this little like like ball of fish and so yeah i mean that sounds great you're not in charge of selling food anymore like you we used to when i worked in restaurants they called that like uh romancing the product like you would go to the table and you would like sell the the chicken that was like the, the special for the night you'd really give them all these words to fucking sell it or whatever like you just made that sound about as nasty as food could possibly get it's just a people fish ball it. with carrots people love it though i don't know i i've never had it personally but uh but people love gefilte fish i'm willing to try it yeah we'll uh we'll get you some next year scott when we can do yeah I, first next time. passover special i want the actual meal to come with it nonetheless you're in, in jerusalem we'll have that's a right meal that's together. right so you get through the meal and um the 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 big sort of section of the ceremony is pretty much done now but um we get on to the third cup here how come i'm not allowed to have anything the last thing i'm supposed to taste is the matzah yeah, so that that half a piece of matzah that the the leader hid earlier, as the meal's kind of winding down, as the kids are getting a little um, rambunctious, they're sent off to search for it. Um, and they, when they find that piece of matzah, whoever finds it can demand a reward for returning it. So in my case, it was in our case, it was money. Um, I think we get like a toonie. It wasn't particularly exciting amount of money. Um, did anybody else get anything? Did you get money? Is that what you guys got too? Yeah, we got cash money, like 20 bucks or something. What? Oh, what? Wow. That's a private school family right there. Like, <laughs> yeah, they got that different private life. school cash. We did uh, We did scratch tickets. Oh, so. sweet. So you so could have like a year. million. You know? It could yeah. have been lots. That's actually the a really million good. dollar Afi Komen. If you, uh, if you won a free ticket, that was a big one. So. Yeah. <laughs> I get to do it again. It's a never-ending cycle. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, the, the kid gets this reward. Um, and then basically the idea is that the afikomen, this piece of matzah, is our dessert. Um, it's the end of it. It's this piece of bread that we're all sharing together as our, our, bo our, our bond as a community. And so it's the last thing we eat. We often do have dessert, like my mom would always make dessert, though it's hard on Passover because cakes and stuff can't have any leavening agents in them. And my sister's birthday is off and during Passover and she's stuck crappy case off it, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but then the very last thing you eat is the matzah. And it's just this, um, again, a representation of this, this sharing that we're doing, but you do drink more. So even though the last thing you're going to eat is this piece of matzah, it always leaves a nice um, dry taste on your mouth. Um, then we get to drink again. So we'll get to the third cup. We're at the third cup already. Do I just start boozing it? That's like, the thing. Like the wait? first to second takes a while, but then the second on, it's like boom, boom, boom. You get drunk really fast. 
Like I remember thinking at Passover that you I could get into religion if like every time I talked about God they just let me booze while I did it. Like this communion thing where you get a little sip. Christians don't do squat right, you know? Like I was that's the one thing another thing I remember being I'm like Jews have cooler holidays. Well, we saying. do like to eat and we like to drink and so yeah. it's like we put it all into this one thing and I mean it can be a long drawn out event and it gets exhausting but you also as a teenager it was so great like you get to get drunk and they want you to like it's part of a thing people razz you for not drinking enough I, I love how like it everybody in a s- s- Passover apparently gets bored of talking to each other because after you drink the third cup you're immediately drinking the fourth cup pretty much there's almost no way in between little prayer all right let's go at it so the third cup of wine is is called the cup of redemption and this is the one that um in christianity like when i was doing research this is the one that kind of shows up in the christian christian messianic sort of um discussion boards a lot because this is supposedly uh the one where jesus um promised to uh sacrifice himself for our sins um, as the cup of redemption. Um, so this is the, basically the third promise, which is I will redeem you with an outstretched hand. So God will reach out to save us. And so again, this is where it gets connected kind of um, to the, the um, persecution of Jesus and this idea um, that this is God kind of reaching out with his outstretched hand. Um, in Judaism, of course, um, that's not part of what we're talking about. For us, this is um, our own redemption um, from Israel. And so then you get to drink. So drink up. Um, before, however, we get to the fourth cup, we have to do a little weird kind of creepy ghost ceremony seance i don't know somebody trying to explain <laughs> yeah it is a seance it's like i never thought of it that way are we trying to talk to a dead guy we are trying to talk to well not a dead guy i guess like an archangel or a prophet or i don't know somebody explain eliyahu to, to the people. what's yeah. this Dan, eliyahu, what's eliyahu with a chair i think i think like prophet is, is the <laughs> i think prophet is the right description so yeah so we have you through the entire center you usually have an open an open chair that i think represents two things. Um, one, that there's always an open spot at your table for anyone who may need a seder, um, who doesn't have uh, uh, people of their own to eat with or, or any, anything like that. And then the other uh, symbolism is leaving a spot at your table for uh, Eliyahu the prophet. And then we also fill the glass for him as well. And then you sing a song, which is the seance part. And uh, magically the wine disappears right is this so, open do we the have the song here can jeremy sing one more time <laughs> is it are we talking about dianu no that's no, before is, i yeah. didn't put that oh one no, no no it's like eliyahu yeah. hanavi i mean when you sing it sounds like you're trying to summon the dead especially that one it is very kind of like sonorous like it's it's this really creepy weird thing like so not only is there a chair and a glass of wine for this guy and it does somehow disappear I mean somehow it means my dad takes a big gulp of wine but um but we also open the door like like we somebody is sent to open the door to let Eliyahu in so imagine like I grew up in Regina um Passover is always the end of March early April it's freaking cold it's like late because we've been sitting around doing this thing for hours and then we have 
to open the door for some creepy ghosts to come in. And basically the idea is that Eliyahu is the prophet who's going to announce the arrival of the Messiah. Um, and so we want him to show up because then he's going to announce the arrival of the Messiah. Um, but it's like, as a kid, I always found this the weirdest thing. Like, are there ghosts? Are there like, are we, are we really doing a seance? It was very strange. Yeah. Um, your Ouija board. And with, with Judaism, it's the first coming of the messiah right like that's a, a very important distinction between yeah the messiah uh, is never G come. jews and and christians is is correct me if i'm wrong but jews believe jesus was a guy they just don't believe he was the son of god or messiah correct they believe he was a traitor who uh, should have been <laughs> executed um, Not i think guy. he was Not executed if i remember correctly <laughs> that 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 was definitely a problematic thing to say, but that um, was the problematic thing to say. But no, but but it depends. Like obviously, normal people like us are, you know. But if you ask like ultra orthodox Jews what they think of Jesus, they're like, yeah, he had it coming, right? So. You know, but yes, the, the general point, the Messiah, according to Jews, has never showed up, um, and we're waiting for the first arrival, whereas Christians are now waiting on the second coming. But um, this all is part of a similar kind of thing, right? We talked about this a little bit on the Hanukkah episode, but it comes up here, I think, as well, when we talk about this idea of, like, next year in Jerusalem, that um, this isn't just about Judaism, that, um, you know, uh, Messianic or evangelical Christians are also waiting for the um, the kind of revelation or, or the messiah to the messianic era i guess we could call it when all of us will be gathered back together in jerusalem um, this is supposed to be when this happens which is why there's a lot of evangelical christians who promote um, the movement of jews back to israel this idea of speeding up once they're um, all there we can have jesus again right the second coming will happen and so like these things are all complicatedly mixed together that um you know there's this idea that we want to arrive in this place but it's not just for us and that there's this other other discussion going on but basically we're asking Eliyahu to say like the Messiah is coming for the first time is our our basic point right and so now that we've let this guy into our home and he's sitting at the table with us and yeah, the children, and he, children are sufficiently afraid go ahead Jeremy you leave the door open for him right that that wasn't just my family no, we were, that's what we said earlier. Like you okay. actually had to like go and open the door to, are you on the same podcast as us? I'm pretty sure we literally just said that. You're amazing. So Jeremy, what happens once he's at the table? Uh, that's a good question. Do we drink again? Is, is that when the third cup happens? Well, the third, this was We've the cup. Done third. The third cup was the is the cup of Elijah, right? Right. right. This okay. Is, and then is now, that? I think the fourth cup is a bit later, if I'm not mistaken. But again, it's been a while, and you know. Well, we're at the like now. He's at the table with us, right? And so now this is what the cup Hillel. Is that yeah, so he basically only stays for a second. Like we don't hang out with him or anything. He just he's, like he's kind of like Santa Claus. 
He's yeah, like eats it. Say Santa. He, he, he drinks and runs his cookies. Then he goes. He's got a lot of houses to go to. He's got you a, know? a right. lot of glasses of wine to drink all right. over the world. So he's right. going to get some drinking done. So he takes off and does his other things, whatever, I guess. And we close the door behind him. And then I guess we move on to people who are still alive. Um, and then we do the fourth cup and our last cup, which is the cup of Hillel, um, which is acceptance or praise. And so basically this is accepting our place within the covenant um, with God. And so basically it's just... Um, really just um, re-acknowledging or re-cementing our relationship in our covenant with God. Um, and we drink our fourth glass of wine. So drink up. And then basically we're done. Um, that was it. Um, now well, we, we get the fun part. Now we get the fun part. We get to yeah. sing and we get to dance and we get to, I don't know, drink some more. But less did, did you did you dance at your Passover seders? No, not really. I we just, sure yeah, didn't because we, we never had dancing either. That, mm -mm. but we did have lots of singing. Yeah. Oh, tons of singing. Um, I actually in more recent years, um, uh, some friends of the family um came to our seder and they had their own way of sort of singing some of the songs and some of their I guess song selections were ones we hadn't done before and it was really interesting how like everyone has every family has their own like weird little spin on the Passover Seder and I think that's really cool and uh is very I think it's a very uh somewhat unique um Jewish thing right that everyone sort of has their own take on the traditions that we all um engage in well, for, for somebody that came in from outside the religion and sort of was just, you know, th thrust into it's hard to say, but certainly I was just sort of shown, I was just welcomed to all of these different holidays with Roberta's family. And the thing about Passover was, is I found it to be by far the most informative about the religion itself to learn about um, sort of who the G Jewish people are. And the thing about the story is the, 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 the Seder for kids is fun because you're getting a drink and you're finding these things and you get, you know, you're running around and doing all those things. But as you get a little older, it becomes really quite informative as well. And then I just find that as an adult, like hearing it again, and I haven't done a Seder in so many years, but hearing it again, it, it draws so many parallels to the persecution of people today you know and you can decide for yourself the historical accuracy of the bible but people being enslaved for being different and then uh having to escape that persecution this is something that goes on in our world today it's something we deal with now it's something jews have dealt with in one of the worst you know, the Holocaust is one of the worst historical events in history. This is something that they, we, we know of present day history that has, uh, is that oxymoronic to say, um, modern day history that has sh shown these kinds of things. And I just think that it, it, the parallels between, you know, uh, black people in the United States, for example, and things like this is like it, whether it's historically accurate or not, it draws very realistic conclusion or re realistic parallels and conclusions to how people really are. That connection is important, though, because I mean that's that's part of the reason why you often do see Jews on the front lines of many uh, social movements, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 
I think Scott's point about the historical accuracy is a really interesting one because it's, I mean, I don't, I don't believe in God necessarily. I don't believe in any of these stories as, as real life stories, but that's not the point. The point is, is that the Jewish people have made a decision over thousands of years to get together once a year and talk about the perils of slavery and the importance of fighting and constantly working to escape that slavery. And not just for us, um, but for, for everybody. And I think there's, a real liberation or a, li a revolutionary basis to the Passover Seder, which is really thinking about who still lives in bondage and how might we help to release them from bondage and how do we all get to a place where we have equality and justice. And so, um, you know, it applies to the African-American experience in the United States. It applies to, um, you know, the, the camps set up for, for Asian-Americans during World War II. It applies to the treatment of LGBTQ people currently. You know, I mean, it applies to immigrants in cages on the borders. There's thousands and thousands of examples of these that are still really relevant and still so important for us to fight. And so for me, this is the political nature of, of Judaism and that we talked about on our last episode about it, which is that it really is about taking action and, and trying to create a better world. And Passover is a, a reminder every year that we have a struggle and we have a fight to fight and that we have a responsibility to do that because others have done it for us in the past. And so for me, Passover is so important and so moving for that political reason, not so much for the, the religious side. And then you get the bonus of being with family and, and you know hanging out and eating great food and drinking a lot of wine, but it's really that political purpose that I find so inspiring for going forward. Dan, I'm going to ask you this question, I guess, but a lot of that, some of that story too, about how um, Hebrews in Egypt were starting to gain, you know, they, they had this, they started to gain this political power, perceived political power, and then were, were enslaved and whatnot. I mean, this is something that, that Jews face today, is it not? As far as, I mean, the, some of the actual, like some of the anti-Semitism out there is about Jews in control and having too much power and 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 this is this isn't gone away whether the Bible is historically accurate or not this is something that's real today yeah I mean it's it's a unique type of um of hatred let's say uh, anti-semitism and you and you did touch on it where um you know at, at the same time Jews are such a minority and and are are picked on the way a minority is picked on by the majority oftentimes. Uh, but some of the criticism of Jews is that they're too powerful. And like, how can you be, how can you be too weak and subhuman and also too powerful at the same time? It's, and it's, it's the, the weirdness of anti-Semitism that it kind of lends itself to, to whatever the enemies of Jews need it to be, right? And, and yeah, I mean, we, we, we don't see it ending today. And, uh, you know, it's, it's likely never going to end because it's always been a constant. I, depending on who you speak to, it's the, the oldest hatred in the world is anti-Semitism. Well, and this is what we, and we talked a lot about this on the Hanukkah special, I think, but um, just that tugged in both directions kind of thing that you just touched on. Like you're, you're, you're weak and you're lesser than, but by the way, you're also in control and more powerful than you should be. And it's this like, which, which you're almost hated on all sides, you know, and there's this struggle for like, and I feel like for, to be a Jewish person in modern day at, at present day, 
you have to have an internal struggle about that too and an internal struggle about uh, some of the political things that Israel is doing, for example, uh, versus some of the fact the, the sheer fact that, you know, we have guys in Medicine Hat that are collecting guns and, and rubbing off serial numbers while they go out and spread anti-Semitic messaging and right? Like we're talking about Loki Holgard here, Jeremy would know, but um, this is, you, you know, this is the point is, is it's happening today. And I just feel like inside yourselves, you must be tormented by that or struggling with that. Roberta. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it again that, you know, oftentimes as Jews, we can, um, we have a privilege. Most of us are white and we're, um, you know, able to function in society in ways that we don't face daily discrimination. But at the same time, there's constantly a threat and we know that that threat exists. You know, just last week, two weeks ago, last week in Calgary, there was a march where the symbols were all, um, you know, anti-Semitic and using Stars of David and the Holocaust as, as horrible frames for, for anti-mask protests and such. Um, and so like there's that constant reminder that while I have privilege, there's also people out there who legitimately hate me and want me to not exist. Um, and that that's existed for centuries, you know, and it's, it's a weird position to be in, I think. And, and we, as you say, are, I think I personally, I can say struggle all the time with that kind of internal, like, my privilege versus the the lack of privilege, I suppose, that could be pulled at any time. And I think the story, as you say, of this exodus, tells that story of, you know, as soon as the Jews or the Hebrews start getting a little bit too much power, too much influence, it's the rugs pulled out from underneath them. And that's always the threat that's on the horizon is that that rug's getting pulled out at any point and that privilege can disappear quite quickly. Yeah. it's a, Again, I think we talked about this in our last Jewish episode, but I think it's a very important point that our privilege as Ashkenazi Jews, Jews of European descent, in North America exists, but it's also one that's very tenuous, right? And I think that that leads to a lot of, uh, at, at least uh, for someone like me, who's descended from, uh, you know, a Holocaust uh, survivor, um, the, these, you know, sort of uh, neuroses that everything you have that you work towards is just gonna be taken from you at, can be taken from you at any moment and um i think it goes back to also the the dual nature of anti-semitism that we talked about where on the one hand we're vermin and we're lesser people but on the other hand we're all powerful right which makes anti-semitism a very unique form of bigotry but it's also anti-semitism isn't i mean it's not it, like to me, like anti-Semitism is like a social phenomenon and the victims of it are often Jews, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? Right? There are other yeah. minority groups are treated like that. I mean, look at the way people are talking about China now. I mean, uh, Aaron O'Toole uh, tweeted out and then deleted uh, this cartoon of like this Chinese person like uh, as like a puppet master, right? Which is very anti-Semitic imagery but it's China now rather than Jews. And of course, um, you know, Muslims are often depicted in that way, uh, especially uh, playing up their Semitic features. Um, so I think that's important to note that 
the, the same it. techniques and tactics used to persecute Jews or to 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 single out Jews or to anything else are obviously things that bleed into other areas and are used to do the same thing to to I mean the, it's the propaganda it's the whatever right but like I think that's the point you're trying to make right is that like these are all adopted sort of ways of of segregating a, a certain part of the world um and and like dan said this is the oldest form of that is the persecution of jews now i want to now we have to wrap up unfortunately and uh that's but i wanted to ask dan just before we we do so um just on the conversation we've just recently had about this sort of dealing with that back and forth the tug of war struggle with as a member, as somebody that works in Jewish media, can you just talk a little bit about how you navigate that um, as a as a Jewish reporter reporting news from a Jewish perspective? Um, is there a, an extra pressure or struggle that you face dealing with that to try to do it? Or is it no, no different than when I'm doing news and what have what happened? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do try and read everything through a lens of, of Judaism. So I, not, not to say that I'm looking for anti-Semitism where it doesn't exist, but it's definitely like at the front of my mind. So, you know, when you read, when you read quotes from people, you know, talking about uh, things that you know from, from your Jewish education are anti-Semitic, you know, things like, like the great reset ideas or, or, you know, um, just, the the term globalist um hollywood elites even you know you know things like that those are those are all in my mind anti-semitic triggers and and normally even if the person saying them uh doesn't necessarily view them as anti-semitic the the historical nature of those terms and and the underlying meaning is anti-semitic i mean like a, like cultural cultural marxism is a big one and has oh, been yeah. for a very long time um yeah and i mean even and, and yeah, like you were saying today, I mean, the, the, the marches that we're seeing on a weekly basis in this province, the anti-lockdown marches for, that are ridiculous for the first point of being that we've never had a lockdown in this country, or sorry, in, the, in this province. And, I, and every week now you see people roaming the streets of our cities wearing you know, yellow Jewish stars, uh, comparing themselves to victims of the Holocaust, and it's infuriating. And they don't think they're doing anything wrong. They legitimately think that they are, you know, being tested on in in concentration camps and stuff like that, even though you know there's nothing to nothing to back that up. It's anti-Semitism, and and that's all it is. That has been like just fucking. I'm not like you know as it's a non-Jew just reading this stuff. Like the the number of times people who feel fucking quote unquote persecuted by COVID restrictions that have compared themselves to Holocaust victims or any, any aspect of Jewish persecution. It's I'm not Jewish and I'm telling you it's infuriating also like it fucking doesn't, you know, it's just disgusting. Like it's like the it's shirts stunning. that that anti-Semitic woman was selling out of Vancouver that said like COVID cost or something on them oh. with a big yellow star. Okay, if you're gonna do that, at least come up with a better uh, turn of phrase than COVID cost. They can't. There are no Jews involved in it, so they can't come up with something funny or creative. Right. cost. <laughs> I already did better. Yeah, 
but I, yeah, it's just, it's, it's so infuriating and not only seeing it on the streets, but seeing it in the pages of like our, our newspapers of note, most like <clears throat> most recently Calgary the Herald. Calgary Herald, but also the Globe and Mail. And then the Calgary Herald before that as well. I mean, they, they had an Anne Frank story or Anne Frank, Frank opinion piece run at the start of the pandemic. And they had another one run, you know, a month ago in the Globe and Mail. And it's, it's, that was a very it's, hot it's, take. And like, I, and I said it and I've, I, I've said it on Twitter and on Facebook and, and stuff like that. But, you know, if if you're writing a column and the first thing you think of when you're trying to compare your situation is to something of the Holocaust, you, like you just need to stop. Like that's that's not a good idea. And like stop editorial oversight, too. It's just like somebody you you know, you can't always control what a writer is going to submit to to you, as I'm sure, you know, Jeremy and Scott both know. Um, but it's the job of the editor to, you know, look over that and be like, you know what, some of this is not fit to be published. It's like you're, it's fucking every day of my life lately. Yeah. So I, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing how uh, we are. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't even say it because it's off topic, but yeah, no, I think these people like Danielle Smith, uh, for example, should stop, take a deep breath, read a fucking book and then come back with their like um anti-semitism aside right anti-semitism aside like we've all like how how easy is it to fucking just not say the quiet part part out loud like how easy is it to just shut the fuck up like how do you not know what you're about to say is going to be take uh, is going to be a problematic thing to say it doesn't matter what you're about to say. We've all had some thought or whatever that we're like, oh, the public should never hear me think that. But the people that are able to like put this shit down on paper, like this is how, like this is a normal way of thinking. Like That's what boggles my mind is that well, it just becomes worse, normal. What's worse too is, you know, sometimes the articles, they're, they're not really making a strong comparison. And I mean, and you'll see that in, in the comment section, right? Is they'll be like, oh, did you read the article? They're not really comparing themselves to the Holocaust. But the fact of the matter is, if the headline mentions something about Anne Frank in relation to lockdowns or something like that, then even if the body of the story doesn't include any of that, you're using the Holocaust as clickbait. And that's not better. No. And I mean, the, the other thing that you'll always come across whenever you, you talk about um, the, the yellow stars in the streets and the Israeli flags, which make no sense, uh, is, and the Israeli flags make no sense because, I mean, Israel had some of the harshest lockdowns of anywhere in the world. So if you're, if you're waving an Israeli flag at an anti-lockdown protest, you are actually advocating for lockdowns, not against lockdowns. But, but that does say a lot about how well, is, not what Israel Jews, symbolizes though. now. They're right. not Jews, though, and that's the thing that I was getting at, is people will ask you inevitably, like, oh, how do you know they're not Jewish, or how do you know, you know, they don't have Jewish relatives or whatever, as though that would make it okay to do these Holocaust comparisons. But the fact of the matter is, we don't do that. That's, that's not what we do. <laughs> There's yeah. a big, big red line that Jews don't cross, and the Holocaust is it, you know? I, I think I, so I, much I, of this is about perspective, right? Like, it's, like, I, I mean, because the point I, I try to make with the Passover se service is that, 
persecution is faced by many different groups. It's not just Jews. Like, I don't think we should take a Jewish exceptionalism part here either. But there's also a level of perspective that, you know, even if we were in a lockdown, which we're not, but even if we were in a lockdown, to compare that in any way to the Holocaust is just ridiculous. Like, it's it's intellectually silly to put this, them on the same level. And so, like, to me, this is where it, it gets problematic, is that we're taking these very serious things and trying to put them all on the same level. So, like, we don't need to take an exceptionalist position to, to still say, like, don't use the Holocaust to compare things that don't make any sense. Like, it's just, I don't know, like, I think there's a place where we can find commonality, um, but there's lines, like you said, Dan, like, we don't we don't use the Holocaust as our comparison. We don't well, joke I, about I, the Holocaust. I, I, I agree with regards to comparisons, but in terms of contrast, I think at least psychologically, that's helped me get through this lockdown. Just thinking about what, you know, my grandmother went through who survived Auschwitz and being like, all right, I have it pretty good. Right. Like everything sucks now, but I mean, perspective, right? That's yeah. perspective. This is why it's called compare and contrast, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you compare and it go, well, that doesn't compare because contrasted to this, I don't have it very bad. In fact, actually, I have it exceptionally good. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, especially because there are people being evicted, people who uh, now have to depend on food banks. And, you know, I don't have to do that. So I am, again, exceptionally privileged um, in this COVID nightmare we're living in but yeah i mean it could be a hell of a lot worse and i think the holocaust is instructive in that regard but um i just I think that argue, you have to, i would argue yeah, that ahead. you have to be explicit i would argue that you have to be explicit though when you're when you're doing it as you just did um when you put that kind of argument in the pages of a widely read newspaper um but you're capped at you know your 500 words or whatever, and you don't actually explain any of the things, you just end up with like, yeah, I'm just like Anne Frank. Like that's not, that's not helpful, you know? It, it needs context and you can't ask your readers, and this comes back to editing as well, like you can't ask your readers to do all of that legwork. You have to do the legwork for them, you know? Yeah. You can't ask too much from them. <laughs> hey, on, uh, I, I mentioned Bob Dylan again, on his most recent album, he has this line that's like, I'm just like Anne Frank. I'm Indiana Jones and the British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. And obviously, like when I first heard that line, I'm like, kind of problematic. But then when you think about it, he's making a broader point about like the contradictions at the heart of American popular culture. And uh, I mean, it's one thing if if Jewish people were denouncing other persecution based on the Holocaust in the like, well, you don't have it as bad as we did kind of way. How but, a lot of that going around. Well, there might be, but the you. point is, is that if that's not the that's not the kind of compare we're we're talking about the people that are saying that they have it as bad as Holocaust victims or or members of the Jewish community who lived through that by going through what they're going through right now. I mean, it's absolute trash. Do I feel bad for some of the aspects of what people are, are going through in the last year? Well, of course I do. It's been a shitty year for everybody. But this idea that like, 
you know, the policies that we face are, are persecution or oppression are just, it's fucking atrocious. And it, I would imagine that as Jewish people, it makes you goddamn crazy to watch people um, not only like uh, compare themselves to you, but like Dan said, like bring out Jewish symbols as like, I am no different than someone that lived in 1939 fucking Poland. Like, come on now, right? So anyway, I got to stop. With a grin, Go ahead. Do it with a grin on their faces too. Right. Like those photos, it's just disgusting. And they actually think they're doing that in a way of like, they are supportive. Like these are the people that are like supportive of Israel and down with the... They don't think they're fucking being problematic. That's what's so... like. Well, well, well that's what happens when that's the logical consequence of making the blind support for Israel, a litmus test for anti-Semitic or not. I mean, um, you know, they were flying Israeli flags at the straight pride parade a couple of years. Do you remember the straight pride parade? I do remember the yeah, straight pride parade. In Boston. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're flying Israeli flags. And, um, you know, I think that says a lot about what, uh, how um, the state of Israel has become a symbol for white supremacy and the far right. Well, yeah, yes. because again, when you look at it, like if you're if you're being homophobic, you can't fly an Israeli flag. Like when you when you look at the city of Tel Aviv, I mean, you know, I I, I don't know how you can you can question the the acceptance of of LGBTQ people in in Israel. You know, well, I mean, I think the experience of like LGBTQ, uh, you know, the Israeli Arabs is different from Israeli Jews, right? Like when you have the police protecting you at the gay pride parade. I mean, that's, I'm sure a lot of Israeli Jews feel safe, but I don't imagine a lot of Israeli Arabs do. Um, yeah, but it's just so but yeah, weird. No, I, I, I think the, the but I, I agree with your broader point that, that um, um, it, it's a bit rich for uh, people who- It's are, uneducated is what it is. Yeah. It's, it's not doing your homework, right? Hundred percent. I mean, like that's the thing. White there, there is a faction of white supremacists that use hating Jews to be white supremacists, and there's a faction of white supremacists who apparently use uh, their dedication to Jews and the past persecution of Jews that it pertains to. Like it's it's fucking weird. Like with other kinds of racism and 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 bigotry, it's sort of like. It's fairly, I, I hate now this is, term is going to sound awful, but it's fairly black and white. Like you either, you either hate that person or you don't kind of thing. And it's, it's weird how white supremacists use both angles of, of, of Jews to, of their feelings for Jews to be white supremacists. Robert, I'll make you, let me make one final point and then we'll get out of here. I wasn't going to make any. Points. Oh, you were just <laughs> nodding like you fucking had some shit to say. No, I just agreed with you. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. I, there's nothing like being non-Jewish and, and talking like I have a fucking clue and then having like three Jews be like, yeah. I love it when right, Roberto agrees Right on, brother. <laughs> no, it seriously. It happens so rarely that it's like, yeah, I, I got nothing more to say. <laughs> but I don't mind that these episodes go a little longer. Like I think uh, people that, um, come to listen to this one we'll we'll stick around for this kind of thing and this is i i thought today was really fun because um like roberta said at the beginning and and I, i've said like it's a fun holiday to be to be a part of it's very informative it's very connected connective uh it's family oriented it's friend oriented it's 
it's all the things that you want out of people, you know, like let's welcome each other into our lives. And um, so it was, I had a great time having you guys on today. And I like, we're, this is our thing now we're going to do Jewish holiday episodes. So uh, if we can ever get Kate to stop, I can blow on us off. We'll have her on as well. But um, I really appreciated the three of you being here to, to tell your stories and for Jeremy to out how bad of a Jew he actually is for uh, having gone to private school. Tisk tisk, buddy. Your mom's not going to like this episode. She's going to be like, that's my son. Doesn't she's, know she's probably going to like it more than the last one because we, we talk about Israel less. Correct. It's very, yeah. But she's going to be shocked to find out how little you remember about this. I don't think that will come as a surprise. (laughs) Fair enough. But I don't know. We'll find out. Love you, mom. Dan Moser from Alberta Jewish News. Thank you so much for joining us today, my friend. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a blast. Leshana Habaya Be Yerushalayim. That's next year in Jerusalem in Hebrew. (laughs) Cool. For, wow. for those of you not in the know who haven't been yes absolutely roberto alexier thank you so much bestie love you the the reason i actually know what we were talking about today so thank you for letting me be part of that growing up thank you for being here today oh no thanks for having me and thanks for doing this episode because i think it is like a weird one that people might find odd to talk about just like the hanukkah episode but take it like it's political you guys like it's the same points we're always trying to make on this show it's just we're doing it around a holiday that's really important to us so hope you all have a great Passover. and ain't nobody else having no passover specials right no and so enjoy your satyrs out there and uh yeah hug sameach yeah and stay tuned next week for our uh crucifixion special (laughs) that's right that's right well listen it's the time of the show where we thank those of our patrons who go above and beyond anything we could ever hope for to nancy niles to dave von miller to chris derwell to big red machine you guys keep us going Uh, we really appreciate everything you do to the rest of our patrons who support us humbled by what you guys do uh, we hope you're noticing the quality difference of the show as we as we do more. Uh, we're trying to put that money towards that. So uh, thank you again for your support. To everyone else who showed up today and listened, we really appreciate it. Um, these episodes are fun for us to do. We hope you had a little fun uh, being part of it. We hope you had a couple of drinks. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, the return of uh, the regular version of The Forgotten Corner. But thanks again, everybody. Take care. Shalom Aleichem.